first of all, um, I'm working to get a podcast of my own off the ground called Incomplete Design History. Incomplete Design History, the goal of it is to take a storytelling approach to the history of graphic design, but to really explore the histories that aren't commonly told in history books. I would just like to encourage um, women designers to promote themselves uh, more and to engage in discussions. And I think that's one of the big things that's going to help women become more the focus in the future of um, archives and, and museum collections and design histories. Welcome back to another episode of Design Dedux Podcast. On this episode, we'd like to welcome Amanda Horton. Amanda is a professor in the Department of Design at the University of Central Oklahoma. Mandy teaches graphic design history, theory, and criticism classes at the university. She has developed multiple courses on design history, including an award-winning online history of graphic design course, and is director of the design history minor at the University of Central Oklahoma. She is currently working with the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum to develop online curriculum through the Smithsonian's Online Learning Lab website. Mandy is also a member of AIGA and a board member of the Integrative Teaching International and has recently been published in the International Journal of Visual Design. Mandy and I talk about design, design history, and we also talk about women in graphic design. We have a very special project that Mandy and I are both working on together, and we can't wait to share that with you. Please join us as we start Season 3, Episode 1, as we discuss redesigning her story. Welcome again to another episode of Design Dedux Podcast. Again, I am Pete, and today I've got a special guest here uh, with me, and we're going to be talking about some really exciting stuff that's coming in the future and um, some of the things we're working towards. So before I get to, to that and we start talking about all that great stuff, because I'm really kind of energetic just to jump in, I do want to introduce Amanda Horton to you. Uh, you could call her Mandy. She would probably love that. Uh, but Amanda is a professor at the University of Central Oklahoma, and she's going to give us a little bit of background uh, about her and her, um, her path into teaching. So uh, Mandy, can you give us a little bit of, of background? What kind of got you into the, the teaching world? Um, so I stumbled into graphic design as an undergrad by taking a drawing course um, and decided to switch my major to graphic design. And I took a, specifically, I took a history of graphic design course um, with a professor named Jim Watson. And he was essentially the only professor who taught history of graphic design in Oklahoma at the time. So he taught it at three different universities. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah. he was so inspiring. Um, I would walk out of his classes. Um, I, they were evening classes. And I just remember walking home to my apartment, thinking about all of the things that he was teaching us about and telling us about and just feeling so inspired. And so um, after I graduated, I took some time off um, and I really was thinking about what I wanted to do in the future. And I remembered those courses and how, okay. how, um, how it affected me and decided that I really wanted to go back and teach and specifically wanted to teach history of graphic design. Wow. So uh, he had a big impact on my I, career decisions. And I guess so. Not, not everyone kind of 
like is trying to figure out what their career path is and then really kind of remembers, man, my history of graphic design classes right. were so amazing. That's what I'm going to do. So that that says a lot. Two things, not only for yourself and making that decision going that way, but uh, for your professor to make that impact on you. And uh, I've been teaching graphic design for a long time. I want to think back. I hesitate because I'm, I, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, I think it was that year or was it that year? It was somewhere between 2009, 2011 um, that, I, that I started teaching historiographic design. I had a short break. Um, where I didn't teach that twice. There was like a year gap twice for me, uh, but I'm back to teaching that. And can I be upfront and honest with you and give you my background? Sure. My historiographic design course when I was a student in my BFA program, um, Roger Remington was my professor. Um, so for those of you out there that are listening that have that has had Roger as a uh, professor, um, he's an amazing um Amazing man, inspirational, um, but he's also very stoic. And um, Roger, forgive me, but my historiographic design class, I tried my darndest and I love the material. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have the the energy or the will to want to teach it today. But I had such a problem. Uh, I, I was a C student at best <laughs> in my historiographic design. And I, I mean, I, I love all the material. I remember all the material. I think it might've just been whether it was testing or writing or whatever it might've been, but that's really funny because, you know, now I'm have that as one of my courses and I'm instructing historiographic design. So, uh, I, you know, I always think of that. I'm like, gosh, I hope I'm the right guy for this. Cause man, <laughs> if you look back at my track record, <laughs> it wasn't all that, all that impressive. So my, my past students would tell me you got this. And, uh, my, fellow student colleagues from back in the day would remember that class as well and kind of say, yeah, it was a tough class. So yeah. are you, are, was it tough for you? Um, <clears throat> I was a B student, a solid B student in my design studio courses, but I got an A in history of graphic design. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I would, but I also was an A art history student. I took every art history class I could take. Um, and those were the only classes I really, really mm -hmm. excelled in. I was never a good student in high school or anything like that. Um, and I think that's yeah, <laughs> one I'm of raising the reasons, my hand. Me too. One of the reasons why when I did find success in those classes that I was really um, you know, drawn towards them. What do you think it was? Do you think about that? Yeah, I I struggled with history in high school. And I I do think that it when I first took an art history course, I took art history before I took history of graphic design. Um, all of the context started coming together for me. Um, I was not able previously, you know, when you have a history course in, in high school or whatever, and it's, it focuses on American history and you talk about things like the American Revolution and, and then, you know, then you take a European history and you learn about things like the French Revolution and all of those seemed like such separate things to me and I, I couldn't contextualize them and I couldn't frame them together. And it was not until I started taking art history courses and we started talking about art and culture and how it relates to 
you know, politics and, and everything else in the world that all of that just started making sense for me. Um, and I, I attribute that a lot to the fact that I'm very visual. Um, but you know, new studies, they say that there's no, you know, there's no visual learners and no, um, kinesthetic learners that they're, mm-hmm. everyone's audio visual and kinesthetic. Right. So. Right. Um, there was a great uh, TED talk that I listened to. I show it in a lot of my classes. Um, Sunny Brown uh, what was her name, and she did a piece on doodling. And she talks about, you know, um, the importance of doodling. And she actually gets into that a little bit. <clears throat> There's one section of her talk where she talks about auditory, um, visual, speaking, and uh, reading. Did I get them all, all four? Mm, uh, sounds about right. 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 I'm like, I'm too... Um, and how important it is to engage all of those. And she even talks about how doodling is um, activating um, those senses as well. Um, oh, this is this is typical of me too, is I had something on my mind I was going to lead to and I skipped out on that. Uh, but I'll come back to it if I remember. Um, well, I'll just jump so, in real quick and say yeah. that I, as an instructor, I certainly hope to have a very similar effect on my own students where maybe they don't like history and maybe they're not really interested in taking this course, but maybe Mm -hmm. things start clicking for them. And, you know, maybe they don't turn out to love history like I do, but at least have a better respect and understanding for it. And I really try to make my classes fun for students. Uh, And I think that's really important. Right. And that reminds me of where I I was going to go to. Um, I don't think that I teach history of graphic design in a traditional way. Um, And it might've been partly because of my difficulty with learning in art history courses in the past. And I don't focus as much on memorization, right? Right. I don't ask for what publication, what, uh, what year, what dates, you know, spell the person's name to a T and make sure that, you know, you get it all correct. I understand that there's a, um, there's room for that. And I, I can hear all my listeners now going, Oh, you know, all those history buffs are like, what is he doing? Don't, don't do that. Don't say that. Um, but I get a different response from my students in the class. And it seems that they're one more engaged in it because they're the percentage of, of students that are going to, uh, be like yourself and, and go forward is, you know, there's a small percentage of, of, graphic design historians where that is what they do. You know, they're a graphic design historian. Uh, I don't know. How, do you think we have maybe a dozen in the United States that are, you know, categorized as that specifically? Do you think there's more? I think there's probably more. Um, the, you know, it's tricky because people wear many hats these days, you know, and that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah. But if you're looking at someone who is siloed solely as a graphic design historian and that's all they do, yeah, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. 12. But um, but I, I don't I don't see that as being a, a great way to to describe people who, you know, uh, because people aren't just one thing. So there right, are a right. lot of people who are design historians and practitioners and writers and curators, you know, and so they wear all of those hats. Um and and I think that a lot of people are dabbling more and more in um, in getting more interested in design history, which is is also very exciting for me. Right, right. So where would you um, put yourself then? 
in in those different hats. Right. And I ask that because I'm also curious how you teach your historiographic design and how that may vary from um, the traditional. Uh, right. And, and I and I do want to talk a little bit about the traditional because the research that you and I have uh, joined forces with and doing some co-research kind of leads into that a little bit. So, so again, you know, what hats do you think you wear as a graphic mm-hmm. design historian and um, how does that affect your teaching method? So I would say my many hats, I do consider myself to be a design historian and an educator first and foremost, those two things. Um, and most of my work as a design historian is in promoting design history education. Um, I also uh, do a lot of work in um, online curriculum development, both at my university and I've been working with um, the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum to develop um, online curriculum for them with their their learning labs. Um, and that's been a really fun, engaging project. Um, but you know, imparting that history to students is a big part of what I do. And I would say that I certainly have uh, a strong background in a more traditional approach to teaching, but I've been really working to move away from that. Um, and, and while I do would say that there is a lot of, there was, especially when I started, a lot of traditional approach to it, it was what I knew. It had worked for me. Um, but I had started to see that it wasn't working for my students. And that's one of the reasons why I've been moving away from it. Um, I take, I try to take a big storytelling approach, um, because that is one of the things that I connected that connected history for me. Um, I would remember sort of some of the outlandish stories behind designs or designers or Mm -hmm. movements and things like that. So I still try to work that storytelling approach into, um, into my, my curriculum and into my process. Um, One of the things that I've also discovered is that um, you have to work to your strengths and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good speaker. And which is surprising to me because I was always a shy child and uh, didn't want to speak to people, but I have Mm -hmm. learned through, you know, conference presentations and through educating um, that I am a good speaker. Um, So I do tend to, to lecture, but I try to still engage students in that and make it lecture and discussion. Um, I tried a while back to flip my classroom. Okay. You know, have the students do the readings and lectures at home um, and then come to class and we would do more practice-based work discussion, in a history class. Open discussion. Now, open see, discussion. This is, I'm very curious because I've actually thought about that model as well. It went horrifically bad for oh, me. Oh, no. <laughs> and... A big part of the problem was the students weren't doing the work. So I would come in with this discussion prepared, but they didn't know what we were discussing. I've, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. I've tried that once. You know, I didn't like flip everything, but mm-hmm. I, I did try that once. And yeah, you just kind of are like, you guys didn't read. And they're like looking at each other. And I'm like, all right, show of hands who actually read, you know? 
And then no one yeah. would put up their hand because they don't want to be that person that said, well, I did and no one else did. So then you flip the question. You're like, okay, who didn't read? You know, yeah. and then you have 85% of the class like, yeah, that's us. Right. All right, go on. Sorry. Yeah, so, yeah. so I had planned for this whole flipped classroom approach for the entire semester. And then um, within the first, you know, first two weeks of class, every time we'd come, I'd have to pivot because they hadn't done the reading. And then I'd have right. to kind of go back to a much more uh, directed lecture approach. And then finally, after I think the third week, I was like, forget it. This isn't working. Yeah. And that's when I really reevaluated my teaching style and my strengths and realized that, you know, there were a lot of, uh, I think, underlying issues that led to my students not reading, not wanting to read, not coming prepared, um, that had nothing to do with me mm -hmm. and everything to do with how difficult our program is. Um, but I had to sort of cater to them a little bit more. I, right, I couldn't just sure. do things that I wanted to do. I had to do right. things that were best for them. Now I have in my graphic design classes, um, graphics one, graphics two. And I have, and I'm cautious saying it because I have started to move away from it. Um, I'm entering my third year at uh, the university of central Arkansas and the first year that I tried to instill it or the first semester I tried to instill my practice here, it didn't go over all that well. Um, asking them to make it mandatory to have a book was new to them. No other professor in their graphic design has ever asked that of them. So there was a lot of pushback there. They weren't used to, you know, having to get a text and having to read, but in the past, and, and I'm slowly bringing that back in, but um, there's there's been reading outside the classroom. So I do the flip, right? I have them read outside the classroom, but then I assign them a quiz for every chapter. And it's either in Blackboard or it's when they come into the classroom um, where they have to read. Mm -hmm. And now that's factored into their grade. So they're they're forced, you know, to get the material because I do want to have that lecture uh, and I and I even stopped calling them lectures in my classrooms. I started calling them uh, either a presentation or a discussion. So even on my syllabus, it doesn't even say lecture anymore, um, because one they don't want to be lectured to; they want to be talked to. You know, they want to be yeah. taught. And uh, that's that's worked out pretty well uh, because, as I explained to them, there's so much more in that textbook that you can soak in when you're spending the time with it. And then when I'm talking to you in the classroom, I'm going to be touching on those topics, but I'm going to be storytelling, right? I'm going to be talking about it from my experiences and my perspective and the things that are exciting to me. Uh, and then you can link the, those together. And then the practice in the lab, right, is where they are creating their own experience of those things. So, but it's, it is, it's really hard to get them to read. So anyhow, you know, yeah. That just uh, reminded me of the kind of the cycles that I've seen since I started teaching, which was when I uh, first started teaching, students bragged about how they never read um, huh. and how, you know, I never, I was like, wow, I wouldn't brag about that. But like, <laughs> I haven't read a book since high school. And, you know, I didn't read books in high school. And, um, but now I, I'm seeing a shift and I really love this shift as an avid reader myself um, where students are 
are talking about what they're reading and bragging about what they're reading. I mean, maybe not bragging, but, you know, talking to their friends. Oh, yeah, I read that. And um, I have an assignment where I actually, their students are supposed to read a design book um, and then write a critical review of it. Um, And very often I give them a list of books to choose from and tell them, of course, they can choose other books as well, but just to kind of get the ball rolling and tell them that the books that are on this list are all in the library, so they don't have to buy it. But very often Mm -hmm. these days, my students are saying, oh no, I'm gonna buy this book. I wanna buy it. I wanna build my design library. And I'm like, this is amazing. So I love this new cycle that we're seeing of students reading again and excited about reading and building libraries. Uh, Yeah, I would say that's, that's happening for me as well. You can see my library behind me and some over there on the other side. But, um, you know, students will come into my office and they're like, wow, you've got a lot of books. And they'll start looking through them and, you know, they're like, can, can, I, can I borrow this? And I'm like, yes, sure, of course you can. I've got a checkout system. But, <laughs> but yeah, they can, they can borrow them and they're like, man, I got to get this and I got to get that. So it's really great. Yeah, I would agree. We feel that here. Um, so I think the biggest question that I get from students is why, right? afterwards they're thankful they're like wow that was really great i'm I'm really glad i took that course that really helped my design skills it really helped me understand the industry i'm getting into um but they ask that question when they ask you what what do you respond with when they why do i have to take historiographic design um we talk about how you know the study of history generally is important and you know, the old adage of those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Um, but also it's important to understand how, um, how design as a profession has evolved and to see that it is continuing to evolve. Mm -hmm. Um, and that what may be relevant when they start school may not still be relevant when they leave school. And that they need to be aware of the constantly evolving nature of this profession that they've chosen. Right. And it has evolved greatly since. Um, and there's always the argument of like, when did historiographic design start? Right. Right. Was it, was it cave paintings? Well, right. Let's talk about it. Um, was it the industrial revolution? Mm, we could talk about that too. Was it the 1920s? You know, so. Right. Hope, but where it's gone to and where it is today, just in the last century and a half, you know, uh, you might almost put two centuries on it if you wanted to give it a round number. Uh, but wow, what a what a difference. Uh, what a difference it's taken. Um, right. So one of the things that we're working on uh, for our listeners, and we got some really amazing stuff coming up uh, for you. So I've always had this this concern with uh teaching historiographic design is it just kind of um and and this isn't just my concern it's shared by a lot of um design historians and graphic design folks um that it seems to be really focused on european white males and um it it was an industry that was driven that way and it was driven that way not because graphic designers, you know, wanted to be that way, but it was the way, um, 
the industry kind of built itself around a male dominant um, industry because I I think that it started to happen back when um, movable type became a thing and there was a lot of machinery and it was heavy labor intensive work. Maybe it just became that male dominant work. However, if you look back um, and it's not talked about in the history books, I think that women typesetters were pretty prominent back in that time uh, as well. But then as it shifted and it started to get into the design uh, world, even before the Mad Men world, it just seemed to be um, how all industries were just kind of male dominant. I don't know. What's what's your discussion on that? I'd, I really want to hear that and how you think that we we got to the place we were we're at. I'm getting it backwards, but anyhow, go, go ahead and tell me a little bit about your thoughts on it. Well, I think that there's just some underlying cultural issues where, uh, you know, historically women were the, 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 you know, they supported the family. They, they, they worked at home, if you will. And men went out into the world and they, they earned a living um, and women stayed at home and raised mm-hmm. the family. And while there's a, you know, a long history of women who have subverted that in various ways um, and women who maybe worked um, alongside their husbands, right? You know, maybe the husband had a a letterpress um, and made publications and the wife helped him set the type for it and actually did work, but he got all the the publicity and the notoriety. Um, And there's a long history of that where, where women do work side by side with with um, with men and their husbands, but they don't get the recognition for it. I, I think um, the first example of that that was recorded in the history books and recorded by Philip Meggs in his history book was uh, the Glasgow Girls. And mm-hmm. that show um, probably never would have been put on if it wasn't for um, the Glasgow Four and the um, Glasgow Boys, you know, getting behind the the promotion of it. But that was primarily, you know, the Glasgow girls that were, were running that show and, and their work. Yeah. And that, you know, sort of an inter- interesting that you bring that up because um, the Glasgow school had more women than men. Um, but you do tend to hear more about um, Charles McIntosh than you hear about the women. And so, th- so while there is this, history that exists that women have been a part of you still hear the stories more about the men than you do about the women right right and then of course if you jump forward into like the you know the 1940s 1950s um again women were were supposed to work at home and certainly there were some women who were stepping beyond that boundary and were having careers um, but you know, that we had not seen like the, the big shift yet where single women had to go out and, um, get a job and, um, and, and that many women chose to continue working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, th- that, that topic and that topic of discussion, students ask me a lot. It's like, well, how come, you know, and I mentioned a few different, um, successful women in design, of course, um, 
you know, Beatrice Ward comes up, you know, and she's from the, the 1940s and, and that era in the 1950s um, where she spoke um, at the conference of, with the Crystal Goblet um, all the way up to talking about um, Layla Vanelli and, you know, how she's really under the radar as far as her contributions to Massimo's success. Um, but, you know, a lot of students will ask, well, well how, come, how come it's just not documented? How come we don't hear it? It, it there is documentation of it, but I think it's, it's kind of scattered and it's um, in different source in different areas. And uh, I even had a, um, a student working on her thesis this past semester where she was really looking into uh, Barbara Kruger. And she said it was really difficult to even find good resourceful information rather than just kind of the basics, you know, just kind of grazing over her, her biography right. or whatever it might've been. Um, and I don't know what to tell them. You know, I just tell students, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure. It's, you know, I, I don't write the history books, um, but I can give you lanes to follow to find that information. So enough of that really got me to the point of thinking, well, I really want to tell that story, you know? And I've been talking about telling the story. Geez, boy, you know, I think back and I want to say 2012 is when I, when I've, first started thinking about that. And uh, I honestly didn't know how to go about doing that, right? My, my background is I was a graphic design professional, did some teaching, fell in love with teaching, and I taught graphic design, right? I taught methodology, theory, process, um, what it is and, and how it works. So the history part, I just enjoyed teaching the history course. It was a nice um, change for me to kind of get away from the the studio courses and do a course like that and um, fell in love with the material, whatnot. Um, so I really didn't know how about how to go about doing it. And everyone that I would have the conversation with and bring it up, they're like, well, you got to do it. And I'm like, why me? Right. And I'm like, why me? And they're like, um, I remember talking to Diane Gibbs. I, I um, had a visiting um, uh, lecture down there where I went down uh, for two days and spoke with their students. And, uh, was talking with Alma Hoffman and Diane Gibbs and, and, and Diane is a, a fireball and so much energy. And I said, Diane, you know, this is the thing. And I really love it. I really want to, she goes, well, why aren't you telling the story? And I was like, well, I, I don't know. And she goes, well, why not you? You know, cause I did the why me, you know, and she's like, well, why not? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> um, so we talked about it a little bit more and she asked me how it was going uh, a few weeks after that. And I said, you know you're so inspiring. You really, you know, have inspired me to do this, but I just don't like, I, I need help. And she goes, well, I have the person for you. And I was like, Oh, Oh, okay. Who's that? And she goes, you need to get in touch with this great design professor. And she loves graphic design and she's so passionate. I was like, who is that? Amanda Horton. And uh, so I reached out to you and I said, Amanda, I got this this idea and I just don't know how to tackle it and I just need support and I need someone to kind of be there for me to, to like, okay, turn this way. Okay. Now walk forward. Now turn that way. You're doing great. Keep walking, you know? So uh, I sent you an email and uh, you didn't hesitate. And, and here we are, and we are going to be doing a documentary film together on women in graphic design in America. And uh, that's so exciting. So, um, yeah, we have a lot to uh, a lot to talk about, um, and we got some great stuff coming forward. 
tell me about your your interest, your passion. Um, you know what what made you say, I don't know this crazy guy over here in this other state, and he's not even from around the South, and he's from New York, and what's he doing down? You know, so you know there had to be that that moment where you had to think about that, or was there no thinking at all? I don't know. Um. Well, first of all, um, I think you know that I'm working to get a podcast of my own off the ground, um, which is going to be called Incomplete Design History. Um, I'm doing a lot of research for that this summer, and I've applied for a grant with my institution, and I haven't heard yet if I've gotten the grant, um, but I'm planning on moving forward with it regardless, just maybe at a, well, more likely at a much, much smaller scale because I'll have to do it on my own without research assistance and that sort of thing. Yeah, I know that. Um, And I, incomplete design history, the goal of it is to um, take a storytelling approach to the history of graphic design, but to really explore the histories that aren't commonly told in history books. And so I wrote the grant for the first season to really focus on women in graphic design history. I'm sure you've seen this too, but in my, in my classroom, um, women are very often the majority and men are a minority. I I might have 30 students in a classroom and only two of them are males. When Um, when I first started teaching, it was 50, 50, you know, you know, and it's been 12 years. Uh, but you're right. That's not the case anymore. You'll get two, three, maybe four, males and the rest are female students. And I've been working to, um, to sort of try to bring more, more women and minorities into the history classroom and the lectures and the discussions. Um, but it's been a very slow process. Um, and I decided that if I wanted to really, really, you know, explode that, that I needed to do that in my research too, that my research really needed to align with what I wanted to do with my curriculum. So therefore I decided to, um, to take on this podcast. I'd been thinking about doing a podcast for a while. I'm, I'm an avid listener of podcasts. I really enjoy them. Um, I love 99% invisible, of course, mm. Oh yeah. stuff you missed in history class. Um, you know, I follow a lot of different, uh, history podcasts and, and designer podcasts. Um, so, you know, I decided that that was the route I wanted to go. Um, and then, then I got this email from you and I'm trying to get this podcast off the ground and it, the, the topics just really aligned so well. And it was, yes, let's take on another project. And of course there was some hesitation of, you know, I don't really, um, know what a how you know how to do a documentary film and um certainly don't know much about that but it sounded like fun um i didn't didn't want to be halted by fear mm-hmm. um and i figured certainly that you know with the two of us we could figure it out right you know and that um halted by fear thing that's what's held me back for so long and um I definitely think it's, it's been, I, I, I accept that. And I'm glad that I was held back on fear because, um, having you on board to work on this documentary film, um, I often think to myself, man, I couldn't have gotten luckier. Right. So it was almost like the stars were waiting to align so that, you know, I could be introduced to you, um, 
through the introduction from Diane Gibbs. And I got the introduction from Diane Gibbs through Alma Hoffman. And it just does roll back into years of meeting people um, and getting to know who they are and, and having them say, you should talk to. Because even my podcast, it's only been around, uh, it's not even been a year yet. Um, I am two seasons through. This is going to be the start of season three. This is going to be season three, episode one. And, um, you know, even getting the podcast started, I ran into a lot of, of resistance um, until Diane Gibbs said, just do it. You know, it, does, it just sounds like Diane, just do it. Right. Why not? What are you waiting for? No one's going to like, just do it. You know, so um, it's happening. And I'm really excited over your podcast. And that's going to be exciting. Um, and, and having that, um, and, and if anything that I can share with you and add, add to, to that success or helping you through that, let me know. Um, yeah, it's, it's super exciting. So we're going to do a documentary film and it's called redesigning her story. Yes. The women of graphic design in America. And, and that's going to lead us into following podcasts. And we don't have a, so the podcast seasons for Design Dedux are uh, eight episodes. This season might be more than eight episodes easily. And it might roll into the following season for fall, depending on how many interviews that we do. And we've probably got six or eight lined up currently. And we have many more that we're working on. Let's. We have a quick count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Who've confirmed? Confirmed. And then maybe eight or nine that have have committed, but haven't. Yeah. We don't have them scheduled yet. Right. So we might fit them all into one season, depending on how things go. Um, now the release for the film, we're looking at 2022. Um, we're still hoping we meet that. There's been a lot of uh, slowdown in the progress due to the pandemic. Um, so, you know, that's that's a whole nother discussion outside of this discussion. Um, but we're we're finding our pockets and opportunities, and the podcast is going to be one of those. So we're going to be able to interview uh, several designers through the podcast in research for the film, but not giving any of the context or content of the film um, up. I guess that'd be the way to say it. Right. Um, I think, I think we're going to be using this time as sort of preliminary research and um, talking to people about what a film about women in graphic design history needs to be about, right. you know, what topic should we explore um, and that sort of thing. Right. Because we're going to be talking to the people who have gone through this firsthand and we're going to be talking to young designers um, who are just out of school and starting out and making their their path and their successes. We got some uh, some of those young women designers from uh, California. Was it Los Angeles? Mm, I think she is in L.A. Yeah. And uh, Chicago. um, And we'll see if we can find uh, someone that's from New York, a young designer. Uh, but we have people have mid, uh, well, early on, midway through their career. Uh, we're going to be, so I'll give some names up. We'll be talking to uh, Nina Stossinger. She's a type designer 
and she works with uh, Tobias Fair Jones. Um, we are going to be talking to uh, Ruki. Now, I'll let you pronounce Ruki's last name, but or Ruki. am I putting you on the spot? No, Ruki Newhold Ravikumar. And see why I didn't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what's Ruki's role again? Um, she is. She was the um, education director at the Cooper Hewitt, but she has recently transitioned to the acting undersecretary of the Smithsonian. Oh, acting undersecretary of education for the Smithsonian. Okay, right. That, that's like an elevator speech all in itself. Just trying to <laughs> right. say what your job title is. Um, and uh, I'll let you say who else are we interviewing from uh, the Cooper Hewitt? Um, let's see. We're also going to be um, interviewing Ellen Lupton, uh, yes. curator, contemporary, com- uh, curator of contemporary design for the Cooper Hewitt, but also um, I believe she's the MFA director at MICA. Um, I know she was the MFA director in the past. I think she still is. Yeah, I'm. I am so giddy <laughs> over all of the people that we're going to have an opportunity to talk to. Um, like I, I feel like it's beyond Christmas, and uh, I'm just so looking forward to it. We have um, April Greenman that we're we're looking to we're talk talking to. with. We're trying to schedule um, that now. Yeah, and you've been in discussion with um, who? Who else? I'll let you give a couple um, of the other. Gail Anderson. Yes, Gail Anderson. Jennifer Morla. So exciting. Uh, Susan Carr. Now we've reached out to Susan. Um, that's one of the folks we're still working on trying to get scheduled in. Um, yeah, it's just, it's super exciting. So that research is going to be um, so important to how we approach this documentary film. Um, so what are, what are some of the, the thoughts you have as we head into um, the interviews and starting to think about the, the, beginning filming process and are there things that you are worried about perhaps it it, that could become problematic or are there some things that you hope that we get to talk about well I think one of the big problems that um you know is who do we include who do we not include yes um how do you make those decisions and I think a lot of it comes down to um who agrees? You know, we we're I think we're going to reach out to a lot of people and ask them to be involved with this project. And some of them may not want to or or may not have the time or the availability. Right, right correct. Um and, so and yeah, we, I, like well, I was gonna say we're not the only ones that have kind of come across that. Uh, some of one of some of the podcast guests are Armin Vitt and Byronie Gomez. I I'm horrible with names. So Byrony, like, forgive me for not being able to pronounce your last name a hundred percent. But they're going to be on the podcast. They did a book on women of graphic design. And even in their book, they talk about, um, you know, the people, some people agreed, some people didn't. Right. Um, and, and we're going to hear from them firsthand on, on their, their successes and struggles with, you know, even having a text of that matter. So when it does come for us trying to do a documentary film, uh, like that te- text, did you count how many women mm. are talked about in that text? No, but if lot. I had to give a rough guess, I would say there's at least 50. Yeah, yeah, there's uh, a lot. And it's a great yeah. book. So in a documentary film where you have about an hour and 20 minutes is what we're kind of projecting. I could see it 
being longer just by the the overwhelming interest and people who are excited to um to work with us like trying to get 50 different women to talk on a documentary film is just impossible right how much time do you give them it's it's going to be difficult right where this could be a three-hour documentary or a or a television series maybe right (laughs) you might end up with a netflix series or something anyhow um but uh, i digress but i um you were saying more about you know um some of the things that you were wanting um to accomplish Right. I think the goal should be inclusive, um, but we've we've already talked about how do we um, keep this manageable. So one of the things that we had decided to do to keep this manageable was to make sure to focus in on um, American design history um, yes, yeah. solely for, you know, just narrowing our focus, not because we think mm-hmm. that, you know, American design history is the only design history, but we're certainly gearing our film for American audiences. That's an excellent um, point, right? Right. Um, and that's something you, know, you and I discussed where, you know, it, we could have a follow-up documentary film right. that does talk about, you know, the global impact of women in design. Yeah, and I think that, you know, part of that too was due to budgets and constraints because we're going yeah. to be traveling to... New York and Washington, D.C. and Baltimore and L.A. and Chicago and San Francisco and and all of these different places to conduct interviews. And then if you throw into that traveling to London and, uh, you know, Beijing and Hong Kong and Tokyo mm-hmm. and uh, and all of these Norway places. Wherever, right. Yeah. Where our budget would just be astronomical. And I just. Yeah. Uh, I think we need to think, start a little bit smaller, if you will. It's still going to be a huge project. Um, you and I even talked about, boy, you could almost do an East Coast, West Coast kind of and, and separate those out. And we actually are really sensitive to not being exclusive uh, to right. the other. And we think it's even important to kind of show the the breadth of uniqueness in women in graphic design from East Coast America to West Coast America. And that's going to be really exciting. I mean, you can't deny that East Coast and West Coast designers have had a big impact on the history of graphic design. But, you know, you are from New York, but living in Arkansas. And I'm from Oklahoma. I'm living in Oklahoma. And so we want to see um, our part of the country represented as well in this Definitely. documentary. And, and, and recognize that design happens everywhere. Right. not just on the East Coast or the West Coast. And and to get back to the students, that's been one of the hardest things that I've had to communicate to students. I've sensed, because I, I taught at Purdue in Indiana, I mentioned that a lot on the podcast. Um, so that whole Central America, the the design students are like, I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to go to New York. I can't wait to go to LA, right? And And I do my best to tell them that you don't have to leave the Midwest to be that designer. And there's been great designers from all over America that that have found their success and they do great, amazing work. Um, you know, one of the things that I have in, in all of my design classes is a journal and they have to, uh, I give them a, a lengthy list and they have to kind of, you know, roll the dice or pick blind and, and just go with one. Um, and it really helps them understand that these designers are from all over the country and all over the world. Um, and 
they can be just as successful in in their little area of of home that they call home themselves so that's interesting because we um we noticed that the vast majority of our students are looking to stay in Oklahoma. Um, and that's absolutely fine with us, but we also want to make sure they know that when they graduate, that they are capable of doing design work anywhere. Right. Right. I think that's an important statement too. Um, I know that with our internship, um, we really encourage them to get like way out of the state. You know, it's, it's like if somebody wants to go to to Tennessee or something like that or Nashville, it's like, okay, that's great. But man, wouldn't it be great to go to Seattle or wouldn't it be right. great to go to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, or wouldn't it be great to go to Germany or, or whatever? Right. Like that's a lot, you know, it's like, exactly. It is a lot, but now's your chance, you know, now's your chance to do that. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, who knows what kind of discussions are going to come up while we, um, have these podcast interviews and try to focus on what's important. And even when we go out filming, um, what's going to surface from it? Cause, um, you know, I, I'm bringing in the, the, the background, the filming aspect of it. You're bringing the history aspect of it. We're both bringing our passions of, uh, bringing women in graphic design more into everyone's discussion. Um, but we don't really have like this background master plan in trying to have some kind of underlying uh, message that we're trying to dig out. Um, I think our methodology of this documentary film is to um, let's talk about it. And, right. and we're going to kind of discover what, what needs to be told and what's, what that story is and how that story needs to be told. So I think it's really important too, to let everyone know um, that aspect of what we're working on um, that we don't have this devised plan you know, to get out exactly what we want to tell. We're going to let the story yeah. tell itself. So, well, um, is there anything else that you want to add into um, our discussion uh, before we wrap up uh, the podcast? Um, I think that I would just like to encourage um, women designers to promote themselves uh, more and to engage in discussions. And I think that's one of the big things that's going to help um, women become more the focus in the future of um, archives and, and museum collections and design histories. Excellent. Yeah. I always, I always like to ask at the end too, you know, if you had a message for um, students um, or female designers, so that's, that's perfect uh, to give them that message. And, and hopefully we're, you know, inspiring uh, young designers of all ethnicities, all gender, right? Just to um, be passionate about what they do and speak their their voice and their passions with and through their design and in the opportunities through conferences or writings or whatever it might be. But to um, you know, definitely release those communications. Right. Hey, where can people, if they want to get in touch with you? Um, to talk more or maybe to say they've got this great thing they'd love to talk about with you, where can people reach out and, and find you? Um, and probably the easiest way to get a hold of me is my email address, which is ahorton4 at uco.edu. Um, but you can also follow me on Instagram at um, Unicorn Loves Trouble. Excellent. Which goes back to like some of the earlier stuff we talked about, about 
high school and and finding your finding your path, right? Right. And uh, we we hope everyone that's listening to the podcast, the audio podcast, gets an opportunity to at least go over to the YouTube channel for the podcast um, and be formally visually introduced to Amanda. Um, today she's got lovely green uh, with some blue high blue what highlights. It's supposed to be sort of a um, a turquoise. Turquoise. To, to, there it is. To green, yes, limey green. Mm. Yeah, says the guy who's got um, escone deficiency, and those that don't know what escone deficiency is, I've got a small bit of color blindness. So, and then everyone's like, "And you're a designer?" And I'm like, "Look, I see <laughs> colors. I just have a deficiency." Anyhow, um, yeah, stop over it and uh, watch our podcast on YouTube and. Um, get to know Amanda uh, a bit better and reach out to her. Uh, if anyone's interested more in, in having further discussion about the documentary film about women in graphic design, please reach out to uh, Mandy or I and um, chat with us. We'd love to hear what you, what you have to say. So uh, Mandy, thanks so much uh, for, for be willing to jump into another zoom meeting yet. Right. Uh, how many right. of those have we had? Mandy and I have been having these for months. Um, so this was kind of like a, a, a Zoom meeting, but hyped up in a podcast mode. Um, so we both did our hair and makeup uh, <laughs> and, and got our got our best uh, best side forward. And uh, Mandy, we'll talk with you soon then. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. And oh, yeah, everybody, M Mandy's going to be back with us for at least the next eight episodes or more as we start talking with these women gra graphic designers. So it'll be Mandy and I. Um, partner hosting um, these podcasts as we talk to these great designers. So tune back in. Uh, the next episode, we're going to be talking with Ellen Lupton. All right, Amanda, I'll see you in the next episode then. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. Right, bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode. The Design Deducts podcast can be found at designdeducts.com. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-D-E-D-U-X.com, where you can listen to the podcast or watch the video version of the podcast, as well as find links to the guests and the topics discussed during each episode. The Design Dedux podcast can be found on most podcast listening platforms. You can join us on social media through Instagram and Twitter via at design underscore dedux on Facebook as Design Dedux Podcast, and join us on YouTube at Design Dedux for video versions of each episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can show your support on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash design underscore deducts. Once again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.